There he is right there. The mandolin player. <laughs> All right. So we shift from mandolin to something entirely different. I'm sure that there are a few people here who have had issues with anger. Is that a possibility? <laughs> Nobody has that problem, right? Well, we're just stepping on toes here right off the bat before we even get into a verse. Isn't that terrible? Well, we all have had that issue and we still deal with that. And then it makes you think of the Jesus Christ, Him being as perfect and as holy as He is. Did He ever have anger? Yeah, He did. Now, not that our anger is like His anger, because His anger was a righteous anger, and hopefully sometimes our anger is a righteous anger, but His was always perfect. And so as we uh, enter into this uh, text today, we're going to be thinking of Jesus. And when we think of Jesus, most people think of Him as being the loving Jesus, the meek Jesus, the mild Jesus, which He is. He's a gentle Jesus. But people don't like it when you start talking about Jesus also being angry. And I can think of the Scripture in the Old Testament where it talks about God is angry at the wicked every day. You've heard of that, right? People don't like to think about Jesus, though, cursing things. That's going to be in our text today. Jesus cursed a tree. Matter of fact, then He had so much anger, He went into the temple and made a shambles out of the court of the Gentiles. Just tore it up. And that's an angry Jesus. Now through the years, there have been commentators that have dealt with these passages. And they're overly critical in it. And they've found reasons to reject this account of Jesus. There's no way that Jesus would have had this kind of anger and did what He did. William Barclay, the commentator, said this, The story does not seem worthy of Jesus. There seems to be a petulance in it. Seems like there's a consensus of these writers where they see Jesus as a spoiled child. And he's not getting his way. So he does this terrible rant. And some of the commentators will say, Surely this is not in Scripture. This is not really the Scripture here because uh, this didn't happen. So, people would say it's okay to cut down a tree if you're going to use that for firewood. But when Jesus withers the tree, and it was a perfectly green tree with leaves, there's a spiritual lesson here. So the critics are crying out to something that is absolutely a character of Jesus. This is part of His nature. He's a holy God and uh, anything that is fruitless and that is hypocrisy, He's very angry at it. So as we pick up the text this morning, we come off the passage dealing with what was best known as the triumphal entry. Jesus rode in on the donkey, the foal of a donkey, actually. Rode in, uh, he was in Bethany and Bethpage, went right on down into Jerusalem. The huge crowds are there. He enters the city, goes right to the temple. Goes to the temple and looks around. Looks around to see what all is going on. Doesn't do anything. As he looks, he gets ready, goes back to Bethany to where he usually stays the nights at when he's in Jerusalem. And so he saw no fruit. He saw no worship there that was true. And although this story is going to be featuring the fig tree, it's really about something even grander. That's the temple. And the temple is at the heart of the religious life. The temple is at the heart of all spiritual activity. The temple is what their nation is about. So he checks the fruit from the tree 
He discovers a tree that makes a promise that it can't fulfill. So he goes to the temple. The tree and the temple go together. That's why we're running this section together. As I kind of read and studied this week, I realized, oh, these things are not to be separate. They're to be together. Now, we could have separated it and then continued on next week, but I think they belong in in, uh, this whole story anyway. It definitely represents the condition of the spiritual status there in Israel. And we know that Israel had the privileges, they had the opportunities, they had the oracles, the very Word of God. And outwardly, they were absolutely fruitless. They had everything that they needed, but inwardly, they were hypocrites. So that's the title that we're using today, Fruitless and Hypocrisy. God has to judge that because He is holy, and eventually the time runs out. So let's see how the tree and the temple tie in together here. Why don't we just um, pick up our Bibles, our Scriptures, uh, stand, and uh, let's read this valuable text that God has for us today. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it, and when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Then they came to Jerusalem. He entered the temple, began to to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him. For they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they would go out of the city. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. Let's pray. Father, your word is precious. Open our hearts now as we focus into this. May this not be just something that happened 2,000 year ago, years ago and it's historical, but it's something that can ring true in our own lives, that can speak to us and help us be attentive to who you are. And we pray for your Holy Spirit to... Uh, Quicken us in the sense of learning more what you have to say to us. In your son's name, amen. Amen. Okay, you can be seated. And uh, we go right into chapter 11 and and at verse 12. And uh, verse 12 through 14 is going to be dealing with the fruitless fig tree. The fruitless fig tree. It's a story of a fig tree cursed by Jesus. Cursed by Jesus really about the only miracle that you can find where Jesus does something destructive, maybe except for putting the demons in the pigs and as they go you know, off the edge into the water. This is what is called a prophetic parable. Those two terms, a prophetic parable, in that it's going to be giving us prophecy. But even though this is a live action thing, it's also a parable, meaning it's giving us a a truth here, a heavenly truth. And he's going to cause destruction of the temple. It'll be years off, but God is not pleased with what's going on in Israel. God is not pleased with what is happening to uh, not only the nation, the very individuals, the people. The things that are going on at, at the temple, their sacrifices. He's not pleased with any of that. He's not pleased with the leaders. He's not pleased with the, the, the priest. God is not pleased with anything, period, of what He sees when He comes to Jerusalem. And so we see in verse 12, it says, on the next day. And the key is this is off of verse 11, which we touched on last week. He had been in Jerusalem, made His entry. Everybody's familiar with the Palm Sunday. Some say actually that was Palm Monday because if you put the days, if you have it as Palm Monday, then all the days are all there right in a row of what is happening that week. 
If it's on Palm Sunday, then there's one day that is missing and we don't get that. It can be that way. Tradition says Palm Sunday. So we usually go with that. But it could be that it was so every day is recorded here. Nothing that I'm trying to shove down our throats there. Uh, Anyway, he's made his entry the day before, goes back to Bethany, stays there for the night. Probably most of the time he's or probably gets up very early and starts praying. Fig trees is going to be the feature here for just a few verses. A fig tree. Fig trees were all a part of Israel. Uh, You'll see fig trees mentioned quite frequently in Scripture. Jesus happens to be hungry. It's uh, early in the morning and probably had gotten up very early to pray. Uh, There are a lot of things that's going to be going on this day and the rest of the week. So, uh, he sees this fig tree in full leaf. It's green. Looks good from a distance. This fig tree is given an illusion that it has figs. Figs. The fruit fruit must be there. He's drawn to this. So I'll just go over there and see if I can get something and maybe uh, get a little bit of snack here. Get a little energy. He's going to need a little energy because he's going to go to the temple and the things that he's going to do there, he's going to need a lot of energy. You guys know what happens at the temple. He's going to need some strength. So be nice to have a little bit of food here. He's hungry. He's the Son of Man. He is one who does get hungry as the Son of Man. When He came here in the flesh, He felt things like we feel. You know, He uh, was 100% man. So yes, He did get hungry. Uh, He's the Son of God. He's full of divine wrath also. (laughs) So the fig tree, it's a standard symbol for Israel. We see that in the Old Testament. I have a few passages where fig trees are mentioned. If you go to Joel chapter 1, verse 7, Joel in the uh, prophet section, the minor prophets, sometimes the little minor prophets are hard to find, and usually I'd be there and start uh, start reading, and now he's not popping up, and it uh, pays to have bookmarks. There we go. That allows everybody to get there, right? (laughs) It has made my vine a waste and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. So they're the vines... Uh, think of the grapes, the fig trees, the locust, and he's using that whole analogy also to show the devastation of, uh, of course, Israel and uh, even the nations. And there was starvation, there was drought, quite the judgment that God had to bring upon them. Sad story, but the fig tree is a standard symbol, and so that was quite a blessing to have those figs. And uh, we know that in, uh, like John one forty eight. You have one who was sitting underneath the fig tree as Jesus came along. Of course, Jesus had seen in his mind, he already knew that uh, he was sitting there under that fig tree. So kind of a place to be uh, sitting and meditating. That actually was... Uh, Nathaniel, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. <laughs> so, there were fig trees all over the place. thing is, Jesus is expecting fruit. And in the case of the fig tree, it's kind of uh, backwards because the fruit comes first. You usually think, okay, the leaves and then the fruit come. Well, the fruit comes first and then the leaves come second. What's going on here? But we're we're talking about little bitty fruit, little green fruit, and, and really this is like March and April because it's Passover time. So in one sense, it's not the time for the season for figs, but in another sense, they should be there. The leaves are there. The little figs that are green, that are immature, the very small fruit, the very immature, that are still edible. People can eat them if they like. It's not the best. I sure wouldn't put them in Fig Newtons. But, you know, at this time, Jesus is, of course, going to make a, what? He's going to make a picture object lesson. He's he's hungry. 
The harvest actually is from August to October. That's usually where we're going to get the figs. But they start out with this just little bitty fruit. So he saw the tree. It was in its leaves. He had a right to expect the fruit then, didn't he? And knowing that, he wants to find these. If you go to Hosea chapter 9, verse 10, Hosea, another one of those little books that have a grand amount to say. That's uh, before Joel. Hosea, Joel, right? And in Hosea chapter 9, verse 10, it says, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season. And so there's the biblical account of that. We know... um, you go through agriculture, you know, that's what, what happens there with their fig trees. And here it's in the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season. It's not really ripe yet. It's not the harvest time for it, but there they are. So that that's what explains a lot of things right there. They should be there. Does that make sense now? He expects to see the figs there. A lot of people read this and say, oh... Well, it's not the time for that. And why would Jesus act like they should be there and, and they're not? Because they're going to come much later, like in October. <laughs> right? Or August. Well, I think we see there's the first part of that. It makes sense now. Nothing but leaves. That'd be a good title, wouldn't it? Nothing but leaves. It's not the season for figs, but we, we know we explain that. Um, the foliage is actually luxuriant, but it bears no fruit. This picture is what Jesus had seen in Jerusalem. I'm going to give you a little paragraph of what J.C. Ryle said on this. I think it's quite uh, enlightening. It was not the season for figs. That is, the nations of the earth were all in darkness and bore no fruit to the glory of God. But among the nations there was one covered with leaves, that is, the Jewish religion, full of light, knowledge, privileges, and high profession. Seeing this fig tree full of leaves, our Lord came to it to find out if it had any fruit. That is, He came to the Jews justly expecting them to have fruit according to their outward profession. But when our Lord came to this leafy Jewish fig tree, He found it utterly destitute of fruit, faithless and unbelieving. And the end was that he pronounced sentence on it, gave it over to be destroyed by the Romans, and scattered the Jews over the earth. And that's really uh, kind of sums up where we're at today. We have the whole package all right there. Time to go. That's it. Or do you want to go a little further? (laughs) Well, let's look at this curse. This is doesn't it seem kind of difficult? Finds nothing. He says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. He just cursed it. That's Jesus. The mild, loving Jesus. And of course, we asked earlier, has He acted in this manner before? Well, as far as His character about being some madman going crazy and just you know, putting on curses, anything, anytime somebody would say something, boom, you know, He'd just curse them and get them out of the way. He could have done that, couldn't He? That's not the character of God. Not in that sense. There's a reason why He does things. You look at Jesus in His totality. You look at God and His nature. The very character, His very essence of His being. And we know He's not that kind of God. He's a good God. He would never do anything that would be bad or wicked. This is a miracle of destruction. Granted, it is. And everything, usually, that what we've seen before... Uh, Everything has been a miracle of restoration, hasn't it? So there's quite a spiritual analogy here of, this, of the judgment, the wrath of God. Let's go to Luke 13. Luke 13, uh, starting at verse 6. And so here's a parable. And he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard. And he came looking for fruit on it, did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, 
Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put it in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. Now there is a little bit different instance. It's not the same story, but it's talking about another fig tree that was not bearing fruit. It hadn't been for three years, and, and of course the guy says, "One more, just give it a little bit more time. And if it doesn't, then we'll get rid of it. How many times have you had something of uh, a flower or uh, some kind of a fruit tree or something, and uh, roses or whatever, and you're not sure whether it's dead or not, it doesn't look good, but it's not really brown or anything. Matter of fact, it might even have some leaves on it. So you say, I don't want to take it out just yet. I'll wait a little longer. I do that all the time. It's about five years down the road after it's been brown and red that um, it's time to get rid of it. <laughs> it might come back. <laughs> they never do. They never do. Well, he said, Jesus says this, let no fruit grow on you from now on forever. Therefore, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And that's the way it's going to be. You know, he, he pronounces this curse that it's kind of like it kills the tree. And we see at the end of the story that that's exactly what happened. Why do people have so much trouble over Jesus cursing the fig tree? Why, why do they have so much trouble with that? Uh, really, when we see this as for having figs, it was really of no value anyway. It already put out the leaves. The figs weren't there. There was nothing there. They aren't, they're not going to come out during the harvest season. It, I mean, this is showing that it's not going to happen. And uh, it's not ever going to bear fruit. And Jesus makes sure that they realize that. You know, for one thing, He is the Creator God. And He can do anything with His creation that He wants. And all the more for using for a spiritual illustration because it's a beautiful illustration, isn't it? This really gets it set up for the temple. As they go together. By the way, he had lambs killed all the time. That's even more uh, of you know. They think plants have lives, but animals seem to even be more valuable. These lambs, these lambs that were perfect, that were spotless, without blemish, used for sacrifices. That was God's plan. So, I wonder if these people who are, and I know it's none of you guys. Here, not bothered by that, but you know, some of the liberal thinking of our day, they get all upset about animal rights. And granted, I like animals, animals are a good thing, they have their place, but animals are, you know, important. God put them here. But they seem to take precedence over the liberal thinking in that the liberals are the very same ones who believe in abortion of humans. But if you talk about some kind of animals or the whales, Oh, they get all bent out of shape. And then you talk about, you know, human life, and it doesn't matter. I mean, everything is... So some of those people, really the people that are objecting to these passages are liberals in the Christian realm. Matter of fact, I would call them unbelieving people if they don't believe the Bible and they start taking out here and there. That's not Scripture. That's not Scripture. What do you have? You have idolatry. You have people wanting the Bible the way that they want it. As a matter of fact, I have a lot of people that will just take out all the miracles because they don't want a supernatural God. Well, you really don't have anything left. This Bible that we have is a supernatural miracle, isn't it? That would even get this. Why would people do that? Well, they want a God that's comfortable. Right? Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 13. Go back to the prophets again. Now this time, this is a big book, and we can find this a lot easier. At least I can. I know where it's at. Somewhere here. Jeremiah eight thirteen. I will surely snatch them away, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine and no figs on the tree. Here we go. The leaf will wither. And what I have given them will pass away. Everything I've blessed them with. So he talks about again the grapes, the figs. You see how important the figs are? What a blessing that God has given. And here we see that God is judging. Judaism is spiritually bankrupt. 
Everything's gone. There is no spiritual thing happening there at all. The whole system, the nation is engulfed in that system and it's cursed by God. The destruction of the temple, it's not about idols there. They don't have those idols sitting up in front that you see so often in the prophecy sections. They do have their idols. Uh, not in a visible that way that way, but their own righteousness is really their idolatry. Their own self-righteousness. And in fact, I can think in Romans 10, in Romans 9, 10, and 11, you have the question, of what about Israel? And Paul gives you the answer. And in Romans 10, verse 3, he talks about his people of his blood. That's the context. For not knowing about God's righteousness and to seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The only one that is righteous is Christ and proved it was able to follow the, the whole law. To keep the law, He did. Only in Him though. So the fig tree is a visual parable to the disciples and all that are kind of going along with Him. I think it's a parable to the nation of Israel. And I think it's a really good parable to the church today. Just because we can look good, our leaves are large and shiny, right? But yet, is the fruit that's bearing that would be pleasing to God. And so that's, that's what Jesus is getting at as He gets, I think, His message across to even the church from 2,000 years on. You know, and the people that are in it. So, there is the uh, cursing of the fruitless fig tree. Now we go to part two, dealing with the wrath of Jesus. And that's from 15 to 19. Now here's the temple. The only thing that he's done so far is just curse a tree. Now he goes into the temple and the action is even more clear. It really heats it up here. Worship is at the heart of the temple. This is what Jesus is concerned about as far as His people are concerned. He came so that people, as He seeks to save the lost, He wants them to worship Him. That's what it's about. He approaches the temple and you have this marble, an amazing thing that just stands out up on this big hill, up on this mount. People can see it for a long way away. This gleaming gold of uh, the pillars, the morning sun shining and illuminating on it. This is one of the, almost like a wonder of the world. It's kind of like, you know, we think of the arch in St. Louis. And of course, this is a temple. A temple of God. And Jesus is coming here and He's going to assault Israel. He's going to unleash His attack and judge them. And the whole temple is just going to be reverberating in uh, the sense of how this nation is. This temple is is a big place. It's massive. Uh, It took over 80 years for this part of the temple to be built. And so it was being built as Jesus was living. And it uh, was kept on being built for a while if you trace the history back, you go back to Abraham and Mount Moriah. He has his son Isaac. Isaac is to be the sacrifice, or is what God told Abraham to do. So he got him ready. He obeyed God, did that, put him up there, and got him ready to be the sacrifice. And we know then the Ram was provided as the sacrifice, caught in the thicket by its thorns or by its horns in the thorns. Mm-hmm. There it is, and that's Jehovah Jireh. There, that's, you'll get that name, which is God provides. God provided the lamb. That's pointing to ultimately where Christ will die. There in Israel, Mount Moriah. This is where all this started. You didn't have a temple back at Abraham's time. But a thousand years later, 
David wanted to build the temple, but he was a man of war, a man that shed blood, and God said, I will have your son Solomon build me the temple. It had been a tent, a place that was not of permanence. It was just a tent that they had before. Solomon becomes king, builds the great temple. It's monumental. And, of course, it's overlaid with gold and all kinds of precious things are in this beautiful temple. It's a tribute to God. Matter of fact, the very holiness of God was there. And you remember, there's so much smoke in there, they couldn't minister. The priests could not minister in that opening day of this temple. God was saying, I'm here. So that's a beautiful thing that's happening. Well, we know that the nation was disobedient. God kept giving them warnings. He sends prophets. Sends people to tell them what's going on and to repent. Babylon, the great nation of the world, comes and destroys the temple. Destroys the city of Jerusalem. The temple here. Levels it to the ground. Just plunders everything that's valuable. Takes some things. God uses Babylon for divine judgment on His people. That's incredible. God has to bring divine judgment on them because of His holiness. Israel was apostate. They had turned their back on Him. The priests were corrupt. All the leaders were corrupt. The king was corrupt. Jeremiah said the shepherds are corrupt. The prophets are corrupt. They have idolatry. The first temple is destroyed. (laughs) This beautiful temple. Seventy years, they're in Babylon, and then it's time to go back home. And God kept His people going. They go back, and that's where you have Ezra and Nehemiah. They build the city, the walls, the temple. And so it's built. And it wasn't anything like the former one, but it was a temple representing the place of God. And as time went on, we know they, Israel had its battles, but... Uh, After that, the temple was um, added to. This is where you have that uh, Idumean king, Herod. He built the temple. Oh, just overhauled it. Expanded on what was there. What had been uh, rebuilt by Ezra and Nehemiah. Now is this magnificent structure. What a place. Stories of the temple. Incredible. What happened to that temple? Well, in 70 A.D., the Romans under General Titus came and smashed that temple down again. Crushed it, burned the city, destroyed it. The Jews were pretty well scattered as a whole. Stories of the temple show this cycle of apostasy. You see it in the book of Judges. You see it constantly throughout the Old Testament through the prophets. Jesus now shows up to the court of the Gentiles. Magnificent place. A place reserved for the ones who weren't Jews. The ones who couldn't go to into the to the temple proper, but had a place where they had a place of prayer. A place where they could meditate. That's where Jesus is at. You have all kinds of shops there. Bazaars there of Annas priest made money there. Uh-oh. They were in together with business people and they provided the goods for them. They needed oil there. They needed the wine there. They needed the salt for the sacrifices. All of these things. They needed animals for the sacrifice. They needed the coins so they could change. So they took the area of the court of the Gentiles and made it this marketplace. They had these vendors, and they split the profits. What a deal. Let's make some money. So this place is a buzz. You have people coming in for the Passover. This is Passover week. All sorts of noises going on. You have thousands of people right there right now. Thousands. In this city, you're going to have two and a half million people as it is reported by Josephus, a historian at that time. And he um, 
actually it calculates that because there were like 260,000 lambs on at one year. 260,000, and they sacrificed them all. So you have people, you have animals, you have Jesus coming in there and He starts to drive out all the people buying and selling in the temple. And you'd think this would have been stopped in a moment because they have temple police there. I'm not kidding. You know, they're uniformed and everything. They have all the value. Believe me, they're watching because people are coming from all over the known world to this Passover. And he comes in there and he starts overturning the tables. Money changers, the tables that they had set up, the seats of those who are selling the doves. These are people who are, you know, they're bringing in animals, their animals, and when they're being bought and they're being sold to the people who came to offer the sacrifices, it, it was an absolute scam of what they, what they were doing. If you brought a sacrifice from home, if you'd bring that in there and it was spotless and it was what you considered to be worthy of being an, a sacrificial animal, and every household, every amounting to from let's say ten to twenty people, had to be represented by the, bringing this lamb for their sacrifice. So they're expecting to get this thing passed, and the priest would have to pass the animal. Every one of them would be them inspected. Matter of fact, to be inspected on the tenth of Nisan. That's what it was back in Exodus. Jesus came in on the tenth of Nisan to be inspected. He was inspected by the people. The priest would often say, this animal doesn't pass. No, what are we going to do? I'm from a a town that's like an eight-hour walk from here. I can't go all the way back in another one. I'm going to have to buy one. Oh, they have them over there. Yeah, but look at the price tag. The animal... They'd say, your animal's not good for sacrifice. So you're going to have to buy one of our animals. It's ten times the price of an ordinary sacrificial lamb. That day. That week. Ten times. Man, have you heard of things like that before? Scalpers. Scalpers at the tickets, at the ball games. (laughs) Exactly. You really want to go to that game? I've got the tickets for you. Or you get into the stadium and you ordinarily might pay a dollar for a Coke at McDonald's. About that big? In the stadium, you're going to be paying at least five bucks and probably more. It's probably more. Last time I went, they were five bucks. It's been a while now. What's, oh my. The markup is incredible. What a profit. What a deal. Then they would be required to have a half shekel temple tax in the right kind of coinage. Because if you come in from a pagan land, you're going to have a pagan leader upon that coin. And they're not going to accept that at the temple. And so all these people come from nations for this Passover. If you don't have the right kind of coinage, you have to exchange your coins. And again, there's the markup. And according to one historian, he said at least 25% markup. Half shekel is really not that much. If you're poor, so poor you can't even have a half shekel, you could give a dove as a sacrifice. According to God's law in Leviticus 12, poor people could do that. Uh, doves in that economy would be equal to like a nickel for us. Okay, you buy a dove for a nickel. But not in the temple at this time. You know, it's like it's worth $4 to a poor person that's a lot of money. This is absolute sinful extortion. Monopolizing. I think this is horrendous that this could this could happen here. All the noise and the traffic that's going on, it was anything but a house of prayer. That's really what it was designed for, for those Gentiles. So you have all these animals in there. You have rejected animals. And I'm sure they probably took that rejected animal. And you know know what they probably did with that rejected animal? Turn it right back around and put it into the accepted animals. Somebody else would buy it. 
That's just a thought I just had. Could be wrong, but I wouldn't put it past them. Would you? He drove them all out, folks. All the animals that are in there. All the lambs. He drives them out by Himself. If you're one of the disciples, you're going... I've never seen anything like this. I guess this is where He's taking over as King. (laughs) Probably going, yeah. The sons of thunder. Can you imagine? Hey, you need help? (laughs) He's overturning tables. He's driving them out. Have you ever seen a table kicked over? (laughs) Have you ever seen? Can you imagine somebody kicking over Bob's keyboard? And then Debbie's piano, like that. All the TVs and all the chairs going down in here, just like that. Him doing it in a flurry. I mean, he does it so quickly. This is a violent act that's going on. To have these thousands of people there with who knows how many animals. So much for the meek and the mild. This is is Jesus. He's, He's kicking over stools on which the money changers were sitting and throwing down their tables, breaking them, scattering the money just everywhere. Debris is just flying in this area, court of the Gentiles. This is a massive courtyard. Thousands of people, and he's out there throwing stools. Can you imagine people seeing this? Nobody can do anything. That's how powerful Jesus is. This is going to happen. Kicks over stools and crates and tables. He's stopping people as they're trying to cut across through there. And he brings everything to a halt. This is our Jesus. Hey, I want to be on his side. You say, I don't think that sounds very loving. Just look at what's happening in the temple. Do you think that's loving? This is God's house. This is supposed to be holy. God takes holiness seriously. When Jesus came and He saw all this, and He knew it, people just evacuated. Uh, I mean, I'm not going back in there. I mean, they're out of there. Might have come back the next day. But every crook, everyone who was an extorter, exploiter, all the rotten Sadducees and the priest, all the ones, the police, all of them there that are into this operation, they fell underneath His authority at that very moment. They could not stop Him. There was no way. He has the power, the strength, the stamina, the authority. He's dominating over all this and they can't stop Him. I think this is a mighty display of the power of God. I think you have uh, here quite the quite the sense of Jesus is saying enough is enough. And they were permitting people to cut across and come from the east and go through the east gate. It would be easy just to go right on through the temple and you're going to go west a little bit. So rather than going all the way around the temple, they would just kind of cut through the court of the Gentiles with all their animals and everything. There's animals in there anyway. And so people are walking through there. They're carrying their goods into the city. They cross a, uh, go across this temple area. That is no respect for the Gentiles or anybody else. And Jesus just stops them dead in their tracks. Stop. You're not going any further. Where do you think you're going? So, the wrath of the Lamb is happening. The wrath of the Lamb. This is the Lion. But He's the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb. You think about the uh, angry Jesus here. This was for righteousness sake. The noise is deafening. The aroma of livestock made it seem like a county fair and at the same time uh, the stock exchange. <laughs> had more than one kind of stock, didn't it? All rolled into one. And so Jesus is experiencing this. So this is the house of God. The court of Gentiles. 
This is open to all the nations. He didn't just come for the Jews, but to all the nations, and they had that built there. This is the place dedicated for the nations who weren't Jewish. And it's a picture of what is going to come too, isn't it? A place of prayer. And instead it turned into one huge huge religious circus, I guess you could say. In Isaiah 56.7, talks about a house of prayer. Isaiah, another one of those major prophets. By the way, major and minor, they're both inspired, not that one is more important than the other. As far as length, that's the difference. Isaiah is a long one, 66 chapters. And in 56, verse 7, which is really from 40 on, it's mainly good news. 56, Isaiah 56, 7 and even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. Does that give us hope? Betcha. The wall is broken down. Isaiah is written 700 years before Christ, and he talks about the house of prayer. That's what this area is known as. And of course, Jesus is mentioning that right here in verse 17. And He began to teach as He went and made this exhibition of His power and His divine wrath. He begins to teach and say to them, Is it not written? That sounds like our Lord, doesn't it? He uses Scripture all the time. Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. And it was set up that way. It was supposed to be that way. And these people were being kept from true worship. And then, he says, But you have made it a robber's den. And he quotes another passage out of Jeremiah 7.11. That'd be a nice place for a convenience store named that, wouldn't it? <laughs> Jeremiah 7.11. All along the highways, robbers would kind of hole up in caves that were close to the road. People wouldn't see them and all of a sudden they would leap out of these caves and hold them up. They'd rob and plunder them. Robbers' dens. That's what this place became as far as Jesus was concerned instead of a place of quiet and prayer that the Gentiles could come there. What does Jeremiah 7.11 say at this time? Now that's a judging section. Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. It's a den of robbers. That was uh, the temple that had been existing for like 250 years or so. Look what it had become. Jesus uses that. And we can also think, uh, of course, Matthew has... uh, this Luke has this story in there too. Psalm sixty nine nine. Now we go back and again we're we're dealing with issues that happened at that time, but also are prophetic, aren't they? You ever notice that with prophecy? It's something that can happen, be happening, or can happen very soon. But also in prophecy is something that is repeated again that might be much bigger. It's the mountain on the other side of the mountain that we see now. And so that mountain is really where everything is really pointing to, to the ultimate. Isaiah, or uh, Psalm, Psalm 699, right? I'm giving you guys plenty of time to look it up. Okay. For zeal for your house has consumed me. 
and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Now, that was written like a thousand years before Christ, and it pertained to that. The writer of this one is David. So he knew what it was like to feel all this whenever he was being chased down and such, but he had a zeal for God, didn't he? A man after God's own heart. Well, Jesus is the one who really even has this magnificent zeal, the ultimate zeal. So, debris everywhere. This is not a cleansing. This is a cursing. He has zeal for his Father. He wants to vindicate righteousness. He sends a warning of what is coming. A few decades later, it will hit. Jesus teaching. Isn't that incredible? He has just made a shambles. There are people still hanging around. What a great opportunity to give a little bit of the Word of God. And of course, uh, in Luke 19.47, in his little account there, And he was teaching daily. After, you know, my house should be a house of prayer, but you've made it a robber's den. And he was teaching daily in the temple. Every day he came back, he taught in the temple. But the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. We've got to get rid of him. Especially what he did in the temple. Wouldn't you be thinking, okay, that's it. This is it. That, that thing about him coming into the city on the foal of a donkey, that just got us going there and the deal with Lazarus. And now this temple. I mean, that's the last straw. We've got to get it together, guys. We've got to do it. We have to do it quickly. Even during this Passover, if, that's, if that may be, whatever it is, we've got to do it. We've got to get rid of him. In Matthew twenty-one fourteen, going along with the same story there, where it says, My house should be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. Verse 13, And the blind and the lame came to Him in the temple, and He healed them. I have to wonder if healing already just started happening as soon as He made a shambles out of that place. And here come the lame. Here come the blind. He starts healing them. What else did it say in in our uh, other passage in Luke? He he taught them. Mark says He's teaching them. He's healing them. He comes back the next day and he's doing the same thing. He's doing what he has been doing. So, chief priests, scribes, want to destroy him. They're afraid, though, because the crowd is... They're really amazed by Jesus. Most of them know who he is. Some of them seeing now for the first time and they're just astonished. His teaching is blowing them away. Absolutely amazed. They've never heard anything like this. And I'm sure some people are saying, are you going there again? That's the man who tore up the temple. (laughs) You're going to go there and hear him teach? Yeah, he's there every day. I want to sit at the feet of Jesus. Now, when evening came, they would go out of the city. So I have to think much of the day he spent right there at the temple. I must be about my father's business. When he was 12 years old, where was he at? At the temple. At Passover time. One last little thing. Okay, they're returning to Bethany for the night. Kind of charge up their batteries. Get ready for the next day. Well, the next day happens here. As they were passing by in the morning... They saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, uh, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed, it's withered. Look look at that. I'm sure Jesus said, oh my, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> like Peter, surprised? Peter, you know, you know that's a that's a miracle in itself. Because I know trees and plants die, but to get everything all at one time like that within 24 hours, that doesn't happen. It takes nature's course, and even you know it may not even look like it's dead. 
And it, it, it's going to take some time for it to die totally and the, the roots and everything. This is what I guess you could say is a miracle here that happened because nature, and Jesus is the creator, Jesus knows exactly the process of that it happens. So this is supernatural. He's taken power over his and authority over his creation, isn't he? Uh, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up, rotten to the core. In 24 hours, is probably quicker than that, John the Baptist had spoken about laying the axe to the roots. Do you remember that? He was talking about this nation and their whole religiosity and the hypocrisy that they had. So there's going to be one who's going to lay the axe to the roots. Peter, here, he's just surprised that decaying can happen that quickly. He knows this just can't happen. And they're putting this thing together. Remember, his disciples were listening whenever he said, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And I'm sure they kind of put it together there, and, and there it is. I mean, it's it's like it had been withered for months. Winter had come and taken care of it. The tree is absolutely useless. There's a speed up of the process here of decay. It's really a story that Jesus is putting forth here. What's happening? Uh, there's a promise of the tree without fulfillment. It has all the promise, the green leaves, everything. Can't fulfill it. Had full foliage. But it was dead this next day, sagging. The disciples never forgot this. Of course, they recorded here in the Gospels. It's a profession without practice. And in the body of, or well, not the body of Christ, but in the churches today, you just have the pews filled with people who have made professions and there is no practice there at all. There is nothing there. Is there fruit? Galatians 5.22 The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what Jesus is looking at. He's looking for that. He's not looking for the religiosity. He's not looking for the the card that people sign. He's not looking even for, well, I was baptized 30 years ago. I think I'm a Christian. No, I haven't gone since then, but I was baptized, so therefore I am saved. You know, all those things. These people were Jews, so they just automatically, you know, they, they kept the festivals and feasts. They went there, but they had no really need for God. They would pray, but they went through the motions. I think he's saying here, don't settle for the leaves. Jesus is looking for fruit. Looking for fruitfulness. Jesus, what did he find? Ceremony. You want ceremony? It's not a big deal, folks. Matter of fact, it leads people right into hell. You want religion? As far as legalism is concerned? You want some legal rules? You want to be bound by those things? makes you feel like you're more religious. You want to get into asceticism? All these things are talked about in the book of Galatians. Because that's what the Jews did. As long as they had some kind of rule set over them and bind people, then we can have our own way of running things and make sure things are in line. Right? That's that was at the heart of Judaism. That's what it was about. It was having all the man-made laws and rules. Because that would then say, well, I do this and this and this, so therefore I'm okay. The thing is, the rules and regulations do not satisfy hunger. The hunger. The hunger that uh, we have for Christ. We're challenged to be fruitful. I'm going to read a little bit from J.C. Ryle again. There's a voice in the fig tree for not only the Jews but for all the branches of Christ's visible church in every age and every part of the world. There was a warning against an empty profession of Christianity unaccompanied by sound doctrine and holy living. That's what God is looking for. Sound doctrine, holy living. 
which some of those branches would have done well to lay to heart. But above all, there's this voice in the withered fig tree for all the worldly, hypocritical, false-hearted Christians. They think they're alive, but they're dead. And if they'd only see themselves in the mirror of this passage, it would quicken them. And so there's quite the warning that Jesus has whenever He does this cursing. And that's a serious thing. And if you'd been in that temple that day and seen that, you would have seen a very holy God. And some people recognize that, right? We thank the Lord that we can say, that's what I want. I want a holy God. And I want Him to cleanse me. If He's cleansing you, He's not cursing you, right? Isn't that great to know? He's cleansing us. He's making us like Christ. So we would have and be like Him. The only kind of anger that we would really have would be righteous anger for the sake of God, for for having zeal for Him and knowing that people need to be having their sins forgiven. Anyway, that must have been quite a day and quite a week that Jesus had when He put on display the great power of God. Let's pray.